Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where everyone is in deep mourning over the loss of psychic Sylvia Brown. May we never see another despicable vulture like her again. You can find us online at doubtcast.org or freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. You can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, 1680 AM, WPRR, Ada Grand Rapids, 95.3 FM, W237CZ, Hudsonville, and 88.3 FM, WPJC, in Pontiac, Illinois, and coming soon to a town near you. Uh, and also streaming at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio, my fellow doubtcasters, Mr. Jeremy Bean. Hey, how's it going? And Justin Schieber. Uh, good. Hi. How are you? <laughs> I appreciate that. Also joining us this week, a very special guest, everyone's favorite impish doctor professor, Luke Galen. I'm back. Woo. I've been, uh, downgraded the guest now. No. Fans, help. I mean, held prisoner. Uh, Please come and get me. You help thyself. Yes, physician, help thyself. You have been uh, <laughs> AWOL for quite a while now, so we're, we're glad to have you back. And in fact, today we're going to be kicking off um, a God Thinks Like You mini-series. So that's coming up along with a counter-apologetics that we've been saving up for a rainy day, some polyatheism, a uh, props and shit list, and a deeply moving Stranger Than Fiction. But first... Well, we'll start off north of the border here in the United States, not too far here from uh, our seat here in West Michigan, in uh, the Canadian province of Quebec. Ooh, what's this story about? Uh, Quebec is uh, picking up the French anti-religious legislation that uh, France dealt with a while ago. That the article said like ten years ago. Can it possibly? Be it said that almost long ten, ago? almost a decade ago. Um, I feel like we I talked about like it, it on recent. the show, but. Yeah. Uh, where in France they banned um, headscarves and so on yeah, by use religious of, symbols for uh, public employees. Quebec is now looking at uh, a similar legislation. Al Jazeera reports uh, the legislation formally called, quote, the Charter of Quebec Values um, and known as the Secularism Charter is now called Bill 60 and it will, quote, ban state employees from wearing clothing or displaying objects that overtly indicate a religious affiliation. This includes headscarves, yarmulkes, turbans, or, and here's my favorite, larger-than-average crucifixes. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious about Which, that one there. Really? Are you going to be have a cutoff in, inches long? Or? Well, I, yeah, I mean, that's and that speaks to some of the issues with legislation like this, is yeah. what's, what's a larger-than-average crucifix? Why can you wear any crucifix if you can't wear any headscarf or yarmulke? Exactly. Mm. Uh, it it doesn't look like, like this is going to... It looks like this might be preferentially targeting... The easily hidden ones. And a lot of people, including secularists in Quebec, are are all for this. It's actually about fifty percent of the population, from based on the most recent polls, hmm. are for this legislation. Fifty percent are 
against it. I got to say, maybe it's maybe it's because I'm American and I have that freedom of speech thing kind of ingrained in me. I don't like this kind of legislation. Well, it says here that the French speakers are more likely to support it than the English speakers. Absolutely. And I, I'm, I would assume that that has something to do with the uh, legislation in, in France. And all they, they also note um, the large influx of immigrants, especially Muslim immigrants, that's that, into Canada because of mm-hmm. Quebec's tight relationship with France. Because France has a large number of, of Muslim people as well, right. which is right. why when this legislation right. happened in France, it was really seen as a slap in the face. Towards See, so, so it does seem <clears throat> like it might be uh, racially motivated in yeah. part. If you go to France, you know, they have the, – the Muslims are sort of like immigrants and they're in their communities and they're sort of on the outskirts of town in these big high rises. Mm-hmm. And it's a very different thing they're than America. They yeah. America is pretty good. Whatever you want to say about them, we're pretty good at integrating our ethnic and religious minorities. I mean go to Dearborn. I mean it's like – or New York. I mean it's, so I think right. that this, this must be their attempt to, to enforce that kind of French, you know, laicite tradition of the state being secular. They, they're sort of getting all – Heavy-handed about it, whereas in America, militant we just, secularism. We just let things take care of themselves here. If you give an immigrant access to cable and let him be, he'll be an American. Right, months, so. right. I don't see how this helps anything. If someone is wearing now, I do kind of understand part of the legislation which would force um, customers receiving government services right, right. Um, to remove their facial coverings, which. Makes sense to a degree in that you have to be able to identify the person. Yeah, if right. you're looking at their from an identity yeah, driver's license and they, you know, they have a headscarf on, how yeah. do you know that this is the person? And in fact, we've seen people who have snuck out of places by wearing headscarves. And, and still, I, I even with that, I'd like to see that that's a real problem. Mm-hmm. Like, like how often mm. is is this a serious problem yeah, exactly. of mistaken identity? Yeah. Um, if you're a bouncer, how are you going to say this veil? You held it up to her face, going, "I don't know the veil." <laughs> yeah, a lot, lot of people wearing full veils trying to get like, into clubs. The practical need for a government here. to be able to identify somebody shouldn't be overturned by your religious freedom. I, I feel right, like, but which is essentially the point. But then to not allow employees, and then to allow to allow things like, oh, you can wear a crucifix. It right. just can't be yeah, can't yeah. be a twelve foot cross around your neck. Clearly ad hoc there. Yeah, it uh, it's it's so dicey. And part part of the rationale for the French law too was that this was um, protecting women's rights and yeah. women's mm-hmm. equality. Right. You know, even if wives or daughters are being forced to wear the veil, well, a measure like this. Right, takes the coercion out of it. Now they have a reason to not wear the veil. But now it forces them to but, not wear the veil, which is another. Yeah, I know. And so that's that's the question. Uh, I mean, I, I've heard some people say, "Well, could anybody really wear the veil out of their own choice? You know, not out of coercion or brainwashing or indoctrination." Yeah. Uh, that seems you know, that, that argument would go anywhere. That's an interesting philosophical problem. I'm not sure how we could ever have a concrete answer to it. I'm uncomfortable allowing the government to decide. Who's legitimately choosing mm-hmm. by freedom of speech to wear right. the veil and who's being oppressed and indoctrinated and forced into it? I, I don't think governments are going to be good at making those distinctions. Right. And to be clear, this is not a, a province-wide ban on headscarves and so forth. It's just for government employees right. while at work. They, yeah, cannot, but they cannot wear overtly religious symbols while they are working as government representatives yeah. Which is a little bit more gray area than saying, you know, 
But still, I mean, that's a way to uh, you know. You know what that means is there's going to be a lot of devout Muslims and Jews and and others who can't apply for government jobs when it comes right. down to it. Absolutely. So this is it's not creating a level playing field for their population, and it's selectively targeting people of a religious background, and particular religions too. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. we're 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 really focusing on. Certain groups here. Unfortunately, we'll see how that develops. It, it probably won't go through. Actually, even though it has about half of people supporting it, uh, they were saying the bill is going to have to be heavily amended to, right. yes. to get passed. And so, I imagine, um, even though, I imagine there'll be some interesting changes made to it. Well, maybe, uh, maybe you disagree with us. Maybe um, you think this kind of legislation is is a good idea. Uh, leave a comment at doubtcast.org. Yeah, I'm interested in, in seeing if we have listeners out there who feel. Differently and strongly differently than, right, than right. we do on on this subject. Of course, Canada is sadly not the only place that deals with uh, church-state issues. We've got our own going on here in the United States with the occasional victory, right? Yeah. And one such victory was handed down just recently. The Freedom From Religion Foundation has been working recently to overturn the parsonage exemption which is a law that's been on the books since 1954, I believe, that basically allows clergy members to deduct their housing income from their taxes. So mm-hmm. it's a it's a tax subsidy mm-hmm. uh, as a gift to ministers. The idea, of course, was that this would be for struggling ministers, extending the same kind of tax breaks that a church might receive to their minister. And allowing them, by the way, I happen to know this a broad latitude on who they define as minister. If you're yeah. defined, even mm-hmm. some people that you and I would be like, well, that's not a minister. If they're defining themselves as ministers of the word by doing some minimal, like evangelical work, they can get this nice. Tax oh, break so not here. just like the the primary pastor, mm-hmm. nope. youth minister, again, but like the, the girl who hands out the name tags at the daycare oh, center. Exactly, wow. the government doesn't want to be in the business of saying who's a minister. They let the Religious people I, tell well, them that. I, yeah. I never realized this abuse was yeah. was so widespread. There's a lot of wiggle room when com- what comes to a housing allowance sure. too, because uh, it's not just it's not just rent mm-hmm. on the property. Uh, they can also get tax breaks when it comes to home equity or you know building swimming pools or additions to their houses mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Um, now I'm a clergy member in the the Church of the Latter Day Dude. I think you yeah. Why why am I not taking exactly. advantage of this stuff? Yeah. Well, exactly. Mm, bummer. <laughs> well, I'll tell you why. That at least now you're not going to be taking advantage of yeah. those uh, opportunities because uh, U.S. District Judge Barbara B. Crabb for the Western District of Wisconsin issued a strong 43-page decision declaring the law unconstitutional. There's a stay on the ruling until all appeals have been worked out, which happens a lot in mm. cases with this large of a profile. But yeah, if, if that's not overturned on appeal, then the parsonage exemption has been struck down, which is a, a great victory. In the uh, Freedom From Religion Foundation's press release on the subject, they note how much these parsonage exemptions cost the public mm. in revenue. Mm. Uh, I'll quote the press release. The benefit to... Cl- to clergy is huge, saving an estimated $2.3 billion in taxes in the years 2002 to 2007 alone. Clergy are permitted to use the housing allowance not just for rent or for mortgage, but for home improvements, maintenance and repairs. They may exempt from taxable income up to the fair market rental value of their home, particularly benefiting well-heeled pastors. 
the benefits extend to churches, which can pay clergy less as tax-free salaries go further. So yeah, a lot of revenue is lost through those exemptions. Well, if you recall last year, they, they did free inquiry, ran an article, a cover right. story by Ryan Craigan and colleagues on actually trying to add up some of the tax breaks about what, what yeah, we what's the about total that. amount of revenue. Yeah, yeah, so I would encourage listeners if they want to actually see some of these other numbers on the, the amounts that we're talking about that, that are basically missed by the government because of these exemptions for churches. Or check out whatever episode – of our yeah, show we, was that we talked, yeah, about, we talked that. about that. I can't keep track. Me neither. Justin's our, our archivist. He's young and has memory cells. Exactly. Mm. <laughs> yes. Anyways, props to the to the Freedom from Religion Foundation. That is an organization. I don't always agree with what they do, but that is an organization that they they do stuff with their money. Yes. Yeah. yeah. They get involved Efficient. in politics, and we've had uh, and Dan they, Barker they've been on making the show a dent. before. Dan Barker, and, and maybe yep. one of these days we'll get uh, any Laurie, Laurie Gaylor on here. Yeah, well. hopefully. Um, so, yeah, that, that's a fantastic win for not only secularists, but for um, the separation of church and state and for taxpayers. So far, this court case has stymied the flow of money um, to church officials, but um, there are other forces in the government keeping religious activity afloat, including yes. down in Kentucky. Uh, apparently, the big rage across the world right now is building life-size replicas of arks. It's the thing to do. So I have dude, a the Netherlands uh, is building yep, them, too. Yep. There's uh, uh, Johan Hubers. Mm-hmm. Which, given their, le- yep. uh, their, their level above sea level there, uh, I would say that's probably a wise <laughs> idea. Not yeah, a not move. a bad place yep. to start. Yeah, he built a 450-foot-long, fully functional arc. His actually was to wa- raise awareness about global warming and rising <laughs> seas. Oh, those Dutch. Um, the, in the Florida Everglades, there's the Hidden Art Project and Zoo, uh, which is uh, estimated – that's being built right now mm. at an estimated cost of cost of $1.5 million. Mm. In China, an arc was built to help people survive the 2012 Mayan apocalypse. So For real? So if you want to budget, budget price on an arc, <laughs> that might be a place to look. And then, yes, of course, the notorious uh, Ark Encounter project by uh, by Ken Ham. Uh, this is uh, Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis, same guy who funded the, the infamous Creationist Museum. Isn't he in jail? No, uh, no, you're, you're thinking no, of you're Ken Hovind. I'm yeah. thinking of Ken Hovind. Yep, that's right. Sorry. For, for uh, tax I get my crazy Kens confused. The, uh, <laughs> the, the Ark Encounter is going to feature a Tower of Babel with a 5D <laughs> theater. Uh, ride through the plagues of Egypt. That's going to be a fun time. <laughs> I mean, it's great, but if you take your firstborn on the ride, <laughs> yeah. it is uh, better, better smear some blood on top of the cart. Yeah. They carefully screen blood. the ages of children on the exhibit. Yeah. They give your kid a little lamb on the way in through the door <laughs> that they and love I and cuddle, and then, yeah, you and slaughter it before you get on, on your the, way out. Yeah. It works great. She smeared some blood on my face. Yeah. That's one of the more controversial rides. <laughs> um, there are. There's a first century village there, drama theaters, a pre-flood village, and amphitheater. <laughs> That's where the fun happens. Yeah. That yeah. is uh, – That's where you have Nephilim and just people humping. Like, it's that's actually kinda, just a nightclub. Yeah. It's yeah. the hedonistic area. I imagine area like the, the, the Ten resort. Commandments movie, Cecil B. DeMille, depiction of hedonism <laughs> where they're sort of doing these dances and the, the music is very pagan. Like the rave in the second Matrix movie? <laughs> yeah. That's essentially what it is. Yeah. 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 <laughs> 
Uh, and there's going to be a petting zoo, a uh, walkthrough aviary, uh, live animal programs, and of course the centerpiece, a life-size replica of the Ark that is uh, entirely designed to show that the concept of Noah's Ark is feasible. That's that's really why the centerpiece is there. Ken Ham has said that uh, they want to prove to the world that you really could, Noah really could have fit all of those yeah. animals on the Ark, that it was uh, not an easy undertaking but definitely a doable one. Part of uh, me wishes that it would start raining for a very long time and that like Ken would get in the boat. I mean like even if I drown, I would like to see that boat just not work like right at the end. Well, and, and coincidentally, he's named after one of Noah's sons, right? Ham. Yeah. Ham. The, the Mark, cursed son. The Kerm hat. Yeah. 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 The cursed son Because he saw – uh, yeah. Well, the um, – because they've, yeah. they've yeah. actually spent a lot of time answering critics – uh, with calculations of things like how much food oh, yeah. and provisions they would have, how to keep them from eating each other, like where the poo is going, mm-hmm. who has to shovel yeah. poo all day to get dinosaur turds off the boat and whatever. And we're going to get into some of that fun stuff in just a moment. But uh, the reason why we're bringing this up is um, uh, while building these arcs might be all the rage right now, financing them has proven to be a major difficulty. Much to the credit of humanity. <laughs> I'd yeah. like to be there at the pitch meeting. Okay, well, what do you need the money for? Okay. So. Yeah. <laughs> the Ark Encounter has just been constantly pushing back their groundbreaking date. Uh, they originally said that it was going to start in January of 2011. They've kept on pushing it back. It seems like every couple of months they push back the They have 40 days from now. Yeah. <laughs> Go. Yeah, in blocks of 40 days can and can possibly have nights. an arc ready in 40 – I mean, yes, we can. We've got a 600-year-old man yeah. working on it. You know, and if they really huh. wanted funding, they should turn to Hollywood and get Darren Aronofsky to use it as the set. Yeah, there, there you go. There you go. Like, Hollywood will build it. I mean, come on. That's just wise use of resources. Well, they, they haven't been that smart. They the project has received just four point three million of the initial twenty four point five million oh, they were seeking, uh, even though they've been trying to get donations since late two thousand eleven. Kickstarter guys and the twenty four point five million is just the initial investment. According to Slate. The total cost could be as high as seventy-three million dollars for the park. And these are people who probably oppose the health care for everyone. So, what's stunning is how much money is being dumped into this project in the to- in the form of tax breaks by the mm. uh, by the Kentucky state government. Not so surprising when you consider it's Kentucky. But yeah, still. I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> for example, w- Williamston. Uh, city uh, apparently near where this ARC project is going to be built. They're giving a 75 percent property tax break and the city is selling 62 million – they're planning to sell $62 million in municipal bonds for uh, Answers and Genesis affiliates. Uh, the Slate article says this means the city is actively taking on quite a bit of debt for the sole purpose of funding the ARC project. Wow. Luckily, the economy is so robust right now right. that they can just throw around money like that. Right. They just have money to waste yeah. on that on that sort of thing. Kentucky has already committed more than $40 million in tax incentives to the project. And they're planning to spend $2 million on a, on a uh, road project in rural areas that is just for the Ark Park. And, uh, this project is a disaster. Right. Jeez. Well, and, and that's the, the really frustrating thing is not only is this going to a religious group for specifically religious reason, 
but it is an, an insane project. This mm. is something that will never be completed. Let me read this quote from Ken Ham on the purpose of the park. Mm. And, you know, and ask people, really, should government funding be going to this sort of thing? Mm. But Ken Ham says uh, on his website, why is it time to build another ark? Well, today there's a great rebellion against God and his word in the land. With increasing homosexual behavior and growing acceptance of abortion, God's hand of judgment is being seen as he withdraws the restraining influence of his Holy Spirit. There is no doubt that God is judging America. One recent sign of God's judgment is that homosexual behavior is permeating culture. Uh, no. Ergo, uh, an ark. I, <laughs> yeah. Here, here's your but, tax money, Ken. Uh, but yeah, uh, when, when they're just boldly declaring that on their website, what because of gays? What rationale could you have for for the government yeah, funding this? I mean, I think their rationale is jobs. A big amusement park yeah, is yep. going to create jobs, so mm. there's a secular purpose for this funding, but. They're spending all this money and it's not even clear that the park will actually open. In no, fact, if it were like a big Thomas Jefferson boat, you know, yeah, yeah. maybe that's something. Jefferson's Ark. <laughs> it's gotten so desperate that uh, Answers in Genesis has taken to selling junk bonds to try to, oh, to, try oh, to fund their project. Um, like a seven-year bond starts at 250000 or 11-year at $50,000. There's no obligation on the part of Answers in Genesis. So they don't, if they don't actually – if they finish the project, yeah. they don't owe uh, you anything. The investors won't get any of their money back. Uh, they won't even get you know they won't even get interest payments back. Just none of it. Um, Kickstarter is the way to go, guys. Get on. So Indiegogo. Also. If they're that desperate that they're trying to fund this through junk bonds, it doesn't look like this project is going to get underway, and and uh, Kentucky is wasting its money. But anyways, um, on a lighter note, I thought we might do uh, this week's counter-apologetics the, on Noah's Ark. Uh, apparently, Ken Ham and his friends feel that uh, they've done the studies, they've done the math, and it's scientifically demonstrable. And that's, that's the important thing here. They're not just saying it's a miracle. They're saying that uh, uh, when you calculate all the numbers and figure it out, uh, this is doable. Huh. Let's take a look at this for today's counter-apologetics. Hide your faith from the light of reason. It's now time for counter-apologetics. Uh, surfing links, I came across a fascinating article on AnswersInGenesis.com. How could Noah fit all the animals into the ark and care for them by John Woodmoreup? who is also the author of the study Noah's Ark, a feasibility study <laughs> published by the Institute for Creation Research. So you know their numbers are going to be reliable. <laughs> <laughs> and um, let me just read for you a portion from the feasibility study. You should really look up this article though, everyone, because there's a schematic. It's fascinating. It's, yeah. It's really – Charts. In fact, the the study itself, the feasibility study has tons of charts and graphs on uh, – on the kind of the mass of animals that would be in the in the boat, 
how much food would they require? How how could you store it? It's uh, get to the poo calculations. And, I want to hear them. And no it, spoilers, the, but there are multiple questions about dinosaurs. Yeah, so. tons of stuff about mm-hmm. dinosaurs and the the uh, proper care and feeding of <laughs> so dinosaurs. Just 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 dinosaur off. husbandry. Apparently, <laughs> apparently there's data on that, mm-hmm. and uh, the uh, Creation Good, Institute has data. it. If so Steven just as a Spielberg an, couldn't even keep the Velociraptors with a technical enclosure, how the hell is they get whatever? So I'm curious though what what their story is about the whole that dinosaurs aren't around anymore. Oh, right? They were hunted to extinction. Oh, okay. See, I, I, for their sweet dino meat. I thought they fell <laughs> off the ark and were buried by the silt, and that's why we find them in sediment layers. I weirdly down. had this argument at a bar, at, actually at a gay bar, with a uh, extremely religious couple of people who claimed that after the ark, God limited the ability of things to age because we have these, you know, we have these people living 600 years and so forth. And after that, he put a thing into us so that we can only age so much. Lizards would, if they lived long enough, grow up to be dinosaurs. So your, your (laughs) Gila monster, your salamander, they are uh, dinosaurs, but they just don't live long enough now to be dinosaurs. I love auxiliary hypothesis. Is that not the greatest? (laughs) That's that's brilliant. I loved it. So here's from the uh, summary of the feasibility study. Uh, According to the Bible, the ark had three decks. It's not difficult to show that there was plenty of room for 16,000 animals, assuming that they required approximately the same floor space as animals in the typical farm enclosures and laboratories today. The vast majority of creatures, birds, reptiles, and mammals, are small. The largest animals (laughs) were probably only a few hundred pounds of body weight. So after he does all of his calculations, he comes up with uh, – uh, and you can look at these charts online mm. and measure it yourself. Uh, only 47 percent of the arc floor would have actually been necessary for the storage of the animals. So that's that's pretty impressive to wow. me right there. Less than half. Yeah, 450-foot long boat with three Because decks. we're given the dimensions in the Bible. In cubits. Yeah. We are told – Yeah, we know exactly how, how big this thing they, is. This is not yeah. guesswork. This nope. is – God gives him the measurements. Noah measures twice, cut, cuts once. I mean, this yeah. is this is cubit. We know Pink. it. Yep, <clears throat> yep. Uh, so, so yeah, over half of the ark's total space is still available even after you pack all the animals in. So that's pretty Rack impressive. Pool uh, table. And as far as provisions, uh, he calculates that it would only have filled up another six to twelve percent of the volume of the ark and. Uh, Potable water, uh, only uh, 9% more. Basically, when you add it all up, you could increase the animal mass. Uh, there's there's wiggle room here. Yeah. You could increase the animal mass up to 5% more wow. before you actually max out your space in the ark. So they, so they even uh, – they have a little bit of room to spare, which is very interesting and counterintuitive. Um, mm-hmm. It would seem mm-hmm. very unlikely that you could fit all of the world's – animals into uh, into a volume that small. So how did he fit them all in? It gets interesting when you see what the assumptions that they made to try to squeeze all of the animals into the ark. Uh, first of all, they count two animals, you know, because supposedly they were brought in two by two, except mm-hmm. for some of the clean animals who were brought in uh, in sevens or fourteens, depending mm-hmm. on how you what passage you look at. Instead of counting two from each species, they count two from each genus. 
each kind, because it says in the Bible yep. of each kind, based on their belief that uh, yes, the uh, the basic kinds were created by by God. In fact, they even have this. Uh, let me read this passage here. It sounds so scientific when the way they put it. <laughs> Current barmenological research suggests that the created kinds most closely corresponded to the family level in current taxonomy. However, to be conservative in this study, the genus was set as the equivalent to the original created kind. So now, so wow, that's great. So they're they're just they're being conservative with their figures, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And I was looking at this. What is barmenological? And uh, never heard that term. Turns out a uh, barman is a level of taxonomy just created by creationists. <laughs> they Intelligently yeah. designed yes, by uh, creationists. But it's barmanological research. Well, yeah, um, sure. uh, apparently they yeah. can't. Uh, Evo Wiki, I'm not going to go into this much, but uh, Evo Wiki gives a great breakdown of the history of barmans, all the different ways mm. they're defined, and shows that there's virtually no consistency in how they. They categorize this stuff. The, uh, in fact, there was a cute little note on EvoWiki that said any definition of one of these barmans that's broad enough to allow for these kind of Noah's Ark scenarios would also place us in the same barman as apes and you know, <laughs> primates. So they have a really yeah. hard time making these taxonomy categories that. so large without – actually endorsing some of the same <laughs> and that's what i was gonna i mean not to step on the punchline here but basically they're saying so we have not each you know we don't have a poodle and a jack russell terrier and a doberman pincer we have two dogs right right or a wolf or right. so then the idea is that after the ark that wolf became other dogs yes. which became other do- so, so they in have other words to rely they're on banking evolution. they're banking on natural yeah. selection and, and, and that's they're not even embarrassed about that, Dave. <laughs> well, I was reading this report over and over and over again. They appeal to natural selection mm-hmm. as as the way out of a lot of their But these are people problems. who who do not believe in natural selection. Well, they don't they would have a problem with species um or these kinds or turning into different selection, kinds. I guess. Right. Yeah. So they, yeah. So, yeah, so they, that's, that's they make out. a distinction, a completely arbitrary distinction between macro and microevolution. Yeah. See, yeah. they're counting by genus, not by species. That's one way that they're doing this. And so let, let's just talk about one of the major problems with that is, of course, as you mentioned, they're going to need to depend on evolution then to create all the all the different species out of those different kinds. Mm-hmm. This yeah. has been ten thousand years. Yeah, do we have enough time by for their that own kind of diversity? I mean, Wait. some of these some of these young Earth creationists, some yeah. of them even say, you know, macro evolution might have worked if there was enough time for it to happen. <laughs> but the Earth just isn't that old, you know. It doesn't. Well, ten thousand years is not enough time to create all that diversity. So so, so that, they believe in like super incredible fast evolution. It would be like a monkey literally giving birth to a human in order <laughs> okay. for that to So their understanding they of evolution it's super fast when it suits their needs. Right. Uh super slow when it doesn't. You if you were to actually f- factor in species instead of these kinds mm-hmm. that they're measuring, uh this comes from excellent article on TalkOrigins.com. Oh, yeah. 
uh, by Mark Isaac called Problems with the Global Flood, second edition. <laughs> uh, yeah, they've had to go through two editions. For, any, for anybody um, curious, Talk Origins is the one of the greatest yeah. places to go to uh, for the evolution debate. This so. is the resource for that kind of a- anything that you're going to hear from a creationist just yeah. about has been debunked on there. Um, but yeah, they he points out he redoes the figures and shows that your total animal mass would be uh, doubled or tripled. Uh, as far as number of individuals, you'd be you'd have a fourfold increase if you were uh, if you were looking at species instead of just genus. But because you know the these animals that their species diverge so much tend to be small, mm-hmm. it's really only about doubling or tripling the amount of animal mass on the boat, but that gets you far past that 5% leeway. Mm-hmm. You go beyond 47% to almost 100% capacity. An- another way that they're getting this figure is they exclude all of the animals except for mammals, birds, and reptiles, mm-hmm. which is uh, which is really interesting. I don't know how they get away doing this. The author of the Answers of Genesis article says, uh, critics have fantasized about the presence of millions of animals overloading the ark. In actuality, the Bible makes it clear that the cargo was limited to land-breathing vertebrate, vertebrate animals corresponding to modern birds, mammals, and reptiles. What about the arthropods? Well, yeah, yeah. and that's a Which good is question. Large, insect is like a huge category yeah. and, of biomass. And they don't so insects, in water. spiders, earthworms, snails, yep. all of that, they're, uh, yeah, they're not counted in. And, and that's an arbitrary removing them. Uh, the, the Bible itself said anything that creeped across the ground. The mm-hmm. creeping thing. And when you look at these creeping things, the creatures that walk on many feet in Levit- Leviticus 11, it includes, you know, caterpillars and ants and, yeah. Uh, so they really can't get away with not including them. And yet, that's going to significantly increase their mass, and that creates all sorts of other problems. But Jeremy, because those are also small. Unless yeah. we're in Australia, they're all very small. Yes, but so. their their life cycles their life cycles are incredibly short. Mm-hmm. They uh, several of these species would go through several generations before this year long voyage on the Ark was over. Mm-hmm. And feeding them, uh, they many of the you know many need conditions of one hundred percent humidity. Yeah, I was going to say, what well, do they have a desert end of the boat and a jungle yeah. end of the <laughs> How are they doing this all in one climate? You know, is ridiculous. The other assumption too: any animal, that, how they get this figure, any animal that's more weighs more than twenty-two pounds is taken on as a juvenile. So they were all young, all babies, right? Which again, they're doing this to save space. Yeah, but so there's you don't have a couple elephant, of problems with you that. Have a baby yeah. elephant. There are a handful of species where, you know, the the juveniles, they need to learn from their parents. Mm-hmm. They would need their parents to teach them certain behaviors because mm-hmm. uh, not everything comes through instinct. That's okay. They can just learn after the – oh, wait. Yeah, yeah, because then everybody's dead. Yeah. Um, well, and if we're not talking about that, you know, if we're talking about animals who aren't like that, that maybe that's a small group of them. Animals who are not like that tend to develop rather quickly. They reach mm-hmm. maturity very quickly. Most of them would be at their full adult weights by a year's time in the ark. Because we're not, so we're they're not, not really saving space ultimately right. by – oh, he brought them on small. 
Well, they're going to grow. They're either going to need parents to nurture them or they're going to grow to be adults no, they're in all that like time goldfish. span anyways. They only grow to as big a space as they can. You put them in a small tank, they'll oh, right, stay right, small. Right. That's, they'll that's stay confined to the – And I mean I, that's an important thing to remember too is we think 40 days, 40 nights for the flood. That's how long it took for it to rain. They stay on the boat for a year until the yeah. waters recede See, I totally enough. forgot so, that. We're talking – this is a big span of time that you need to care for all these animals. It's not a couple of weeks. Uh, and as Luke mentioned, you know, how do they uh, how do they get away with not having fish or marine mammals? I mean conceivably they would have to build watertight tanks for mm-hmm. blue whales, sea lions, sharks, that sort of thing. And you know, because basically what, what happens is either our freshwater fish or our saltwater fish are going to die. Right. Yeah. You can't have both. You can't have both. It's funny the way they uh, they try to get around this. You know, they consider well, many fish can survive as larval offspring. So, yeah, for a year mm-hmm. in extreme mm-hmm. conditions yeah. in different salinity. Then they say, well, and if that doesn't work, you know, probably the floodwaters were brackish water, so they reduced <laughs> salinity. You know, five between five and nineteen percent salinity so of it's ocean water. Range, so it kills. All of them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, here, let me let me quote uh, the answers in Genesis. There is a range of brackish water that would be tolerated by nearly all ocean fish as well as a significant fraction of freshwater fish. Uh, what about those organisms that can't tolerate this? Well, variations in salinity according to geographic area and the probable stratification of denser, saltier water would have created pockets of considerable salinity and other oh, pockets geez. that approach freshwater For a qualities. year, it's not Sensitive organisms could survive there. And besides, the ones that couldn't were sinners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, apparently they think brackish water is going to just take care of this mm-hmm. problem. Uh, well, going through the Talk Origins article, it's definitely not the case. <laughs> Some animals can survive in different salinity conditions for a short amount of time. But again, we're talking about a year here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the consequences could be devastating. And it's not just on – it's not just on animals. It's on all the vegetation and the wildlife. Presumably, they have, they have to have something to eat once they get off of the ark. And, uh, and trees, vegetation are not going to be able to survive being completely submerged in water. Especially not salty water. Jeremy, trees need water to live. I have a way to fix all of this for the creationist. Uh-huh. You know, you have like the day-age theorists. They're like, oh, a day is like a thousand years, you know. So they, why don't they just say that the year referred to just means like, I don't know, three days or something. Yeah, yeah. End of end of problem, <laughs> which still is not at all the <laughs> right. end of the problem. Right, right. But, well, uh, yeah, end them, of some of the problems. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, the talk origins even goes on to say even the seeds of most plants would die if submerged mm-hmm. for a few months. Uh, we also have to consider that most of the trees would be buried by sediment. Mm-hmm. Plants require established soils to grow. These would have been stripped away by the flood. I mean they're claiming the flood was devastating enough to create the Grand Canyon and stuff, but yes, apparently yeah. not enough to strip away some topsoil. <laughs> but yeah, but it does explain why we find whale skeletons in the Sahara Desert. Because yeah. when the waters recede, <laughs> right. right. wherever right. they are, they right. are stuck. <laughs> yeah. Uh, not to mention that some plants only actually germinate after being ingested by animals. 
uh, or being going through a fire. Uh, these are conditions that aren't going to exist after the flood. Another thing, I you know, I've seen arguments on Noah's Ark for years, back and forth. The talk origins had something I'd never thought of before. They actually make part of their case by looking at coral. They talk about how delicate coral is. Basically, coral can only survive in shallow water. They're not going to have it. Coral isn't going to have that. And any kind of silt that covers the reef is going to devastate it. Now, the interesting thing about coral is we know the rates at which it's deposited. The calcium is deposited. And so we actually have reefs that should have been around for millions of years to reach that level of thickness. They don't show any signs of flood damage or anything like that. But I mean really a, a flood like this would leave a lot of impacts that should right. be measurable in, in tree cores. Uh, we have tree cores going back you know, 10,000 years, ice cores going back 40,000 years. You know, They should, should indicate something changed. And also a planet doesn't come back from this. I mean it just doesn't. You, you, it, it, there would have to be more water than there is in our closed system for it to rain this much and cover the entire planet with rain. Even yeah. in the water world, you only get the water gets up to Mount Everest top. Right. So, right. You know. So I mean Wait and a it just it's Kevin Cost. <laughs> and humans have gills. I love that movie. Well, which, which is an example of evolution happening very quickly. That was within a generation. Kevin Costner yeah. involved. <laughs> right, right, right. Or a couple of generations. So I, I, I do want to share – before I quit this, I want to share just because I find the answers in Genesis responses so hilarious. So this is This is a bit of just me enjoying <laughs> how pitiful their response is. But try to read it as convincingly as possible. We haven't gotten to the question of how these animals are fed. Mm-hmm. And this is what I find hilarious. There's a great book uh, by Chris McGowan. It's called In the Beginning. It, it was one of the one of the earlier books to try to debunk creationism. So some of the information and in the debate is is out of date in that one. But his part on Noah's Bible, uh, Noah's Ark, is just excellent. He just uses specific examples to give you a sense of how impossible it would be to feed these creatures. He says, uh, a lion consumes its own weight and food in food every eight or nine days. So a pair of lions would eat about 35 kilograms of meat a day. That would be about 10 tons during the year-long voyage. And that's just for the lions. Just storing that kind of meat would be difficult. But keeping it fresh mm-hmm. for them to be able to eat uh, would be virtually impossible. African elephants, he says, uh, six, 160 kilograms of fiber a day. Yep, but so they would babies, consume Jeremy, just baby elephants. Yeah, okay, juvenile <laughs> elephants. And and we all know juveniles don't eat a lot, no. right? They're <laughs> growing growing doesn't require extra fuel of any kind. Um a pair of elephants would consume 96 metric tons. <laughs> Uh, just the elephants. This is right? why your parents didn't. We're not getting like yard. like some of the other domesticated mammals that eat a lot by themselves. We're, we're they're bringing fourteen each on the ark. Right. This right. is just two elephants for a year. Mm. What it would take. Here's what answers in Genesis. They they act like what's the problem here? Jerky. That's the answer. <laughs> They took straw. They compressed it. They even show these little automated feeders that Noah would have constructed so so he could have saved the man hours. There's a man ahead of his time. Oh, my gosh. It's brilliant. Did he build set a up boat? He yeah. built these feeding systems? These feeding systems are so elaborate. And uh, jerky will solve the rest. <laughs> Dried meat 
reconstituted dried meat, and maybe for a few of those picky meat eaters that need to actually capture live prey, maybe they would have some sort of live feeder in there for them to have an arena. But uh, <laughs> apparently, that's that's gonna take care of it. Wait, yeah, so why are they having problems building this ark? Yeah, I just, I mean, it seems like they've got it all figured yeah. out. How is no no mention of mold or disease or anything else? Mm. And if you think about it, the ark is going to be an incubator for every kind of disease. Oh, well, that's how they you carry have, diseases. Right. That's why they survive. Modern, Yeah, well, that's a good point, Dave, right? That's something you never hear about. The diseases need to survive, right? Most diseases need to survive in a host. Right. And uh, it's either going to kill its host or the immune system of the host is going to kill the disease. Right. So if they want disease, parasites, and everything else to survive the flood, these are going to have to be incubated inside of the animals and the I, again, humans. Again, I refer everyone to the non-stem co- collectors in the world where they have arguments about, but dad, I don't want to hear about it. I'm carrying hookworm and <laughs> yeah. you have to have your tapeworms in. But Shem, Shem's back there with the other pair of the brain parasites. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, they got to carry these diseases and somehow they got to keep the environment that they're creating with all of these animals, all the moisture and the heat you would think would be in there is the perfect environment for mold to grow in. Mm-hmm. So how they're going to keep this stuff fresh and that's not even getting to specialized diets right. like koala bears with uh, eucalyptus, eucalyptus yeah. panda bears with bamboo, all of these specialized diets. I mean when we get to the insects, then that's a huge, huge problem with their specialized diets. A- again, it's just funny the way they dismiss these objections as if like, oh, really? You're going to trouble your mind with this? <laughs> uh, and one of here. Noah's daughters probably was gluten-free. So. Yeah, right. <laughs> Let me tell you, that Dad, is not an easy diet to Dad, accomplish. I can't eat yeah. that. And you know Even, these kids were picky eaters too. I, I would have just tossed I'm, them off the boat. Beans again? <laughs> <laughs> Quote, even the most fussy animal kinds today contain individual representatives that can depart from the foods their kind normally eats in nature. For example, although most koalas eat nothing but fresh eucalyptus leaves, there are individual koalas that will subsist on dried eucalyptus leaves. Likewise, some individual pandas will also accept dried bamboo stalks. All right, so even if we're going to accept that pandas and koalas could subsist on dried versions and for a year. Were available in the Middle East. Yeah. How exactly? Yeah, that's my question. Are the koalas picking, drying, Carrying and compressing, and then <laughs> throwing over their back all the eucalyptus they're going to need as they're crawling over? Jeremy, they're are the Asian, pandas. They are the hard thing? workers. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, oh. they, they can't unless unless they're bringing this shit with them. Yeah, I'm not sure how they get it. And also, it, okay, so some individual koalas will eat dried uh, eucalyptus. Okay. So they're, we're talking mutants. There's some kind of mutation that allows them to eat the dried eucalyptus as opposed to the fresh, right? Well, wouldn't then if they were the, the, the Adam and Eve of a new race of koalas, wouldn't all koalas then born from yeah. them be able to – Eat dry leaves. Well, yeah, and but that's again how they get around some of this is they think that um, they think that maybe the the specialized diets of some of these animals evolved after the flood is basically uh, their way of trying to get around this, um, which again is just silly. After eating after the flood, of course, is a problem too. 
because oh, what are all the meat eaters going to eat except the other right. <laughs> animals that have survived? They better start reproducing. That's why rabbits reproduce so quickly. Answers in Genesis says this falsely assumes that only the, the only sources of meat available to the ark-released carnivores were ark-released herbivores, but that's not the case. The post-flood world would have had plenty of rotting corpses of various animals. That, yeah. <laughs> corpses that have been floating or, in the or water year, for or a they year. Could, or they could fish. Yeah. <laughs> they could fish. Yeah. So there's going to be a ton of nutritional value, right? Oh, I, my God. you, you got to think these poor poor damn animals, they've been the, – their muscles have atrophied yep. from being squeezed into an ark for all that They're time. They're putting their as babies so they have yeah. no – they don't know how to hunt. They're mm. parasite and disease-ridden. They've been <laughs> yeah. eating compressed fiber and jerky. And then the, 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 whole the giant door opens up yeah. and they're just like, go go and live. Go eat the corpses. <laughs> you thought Try the animals in, in yeah. our zoo look and, sad and deprived? You know, and all, they have it a paradise. In all the story books, it's like it's like a party and there's a oh rainbow. I wish someone would make like time, a try to make like a realistic version of this. Think of <laughs> like the at bleak the end. hellscape, these poor animals are coming. And and that's skin and bones like And the uh, kangaroos gotta somehow limping. get to Australia. Yeah, yeah. The pan does somehow have to cross Eurasia. Well, Noah went on tour and, afterwards well, and dropped them no, off they in different did, places. They, they take the ark apart and they float on their little yeah, rafts, little yeah. sections of it. Oh, okay. Yeah, and they must have made made the ark to be detachable. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. As lifeboats. It's like a transformer ark. Yes. Uh, that, that was another interesting thing that Talk Origins brought up was um, – um, how are you going to make a wood boat that's 450 feet long that carries that <laughs> yeah. kind of mass mm-hmm. and is seaworthy? They're like even today the largest wooden ships are about 300 feet and they require iron straps to reinforce yeah. mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. They leak all the time. They have to be constantly pumped. It's just not even conceivable that this boat would actually float in the water. But um, yeah, I guess we could just end it there. There's there's more silliness. Believe it or not, my notes go on for pages and pages and pages on this. We didn't even get to the dinosaurs, for God's sakes. There's, yeah, yeah, uh, we didn't talk about dinosaurs. How they're removing the excrement. I wanted from, to hear about the poo. How do they get rid of the poo? The the bottom of the cages were sloped, so it all just slid out. Yeah, <laughs> which is. How's that not uncomfortable? Yes, right. and there were these little troughs then at the bottom that collected mm-hmm. all the feces and then were hoisted up and uh, tossed overboard. But um, as a that is a full day's work for uh, Noah's children. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, uh, McGowan and uh, that's and the talk origin uh, both talk about the the type of excrement. You know, the volume of excrement they would have to <laughs> remove regularly. And what a massive undertaking it's, that would be. Just keeping the ark from exploding from methane ge- right, <laughs> buildups yes. would be difficult. That's not they got as bad an, as the carnival yeah. cruise. <laughs> <laughs> they got 18 square inch. With their uh, boat tours that you can now take of the Caribbean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, apparently Answers in Genesis thinks an 18 square inch hole in the top of the ark is going to cover that's, all their ventilation that's good. needs too. So. Uh. Um, so yeah, it, it'll be it'll be interesting um, if that arc project ever gets built, and and actually I think it'll probably have the exact opposite effect uh, as the as the as park creators because when you actually look at their photographs of the cages, these things are like freaking Hiltons. Like, oh really? Yeah, like one little duck in a big wooden stable all by <laughs> itself, all this food available to it. You know, it just it looks like uh it looks great. But 
Jeremy, unfortunately, in this article, they have provided themselves with a perfect out for any problems we have in explaining how this works. Oh, yeah? You catch this in the introduction? Hmm. So in introduction to this article and answers in Genesis. Uh, quote, according to scripture, Noah's Ark was a safe haven for representatives of all kinds of air-breathing land animals and birds that God created. While it is possible that God made miraculous provisions for the daily care of these animals, it's not necessary or required by scripture to appeal to miracles. Unquote. So it's not necessary, but... If they run into anything that they can't yeah. explain, they can just go, well, and then a miracle. Because then he outlines different points where, you know, the the door miraculously shuts and other things right. that did happen by miracle. So all they have to do is is pull that card and yeah. it's all taken care of. Yep. yep. It's a, they can... And you know what? What more appropriate? We just celebrated the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who. Noah's Ark is a TARDIS. Bigger on there the inside. Go. There you go. That's all you need. Yep. Yeah, some sort of uh, quantum uh, fooling around with stuff. And and actually, I mean, that's if you're going to go the miracle route, just go all the way. Mm-hmm. Right. Why does God need to go build Why a boat? Why do we need to pretend it's scientifically plausible? Wave a 600-year-old man build a boat. Couldn't God, like, wave his hand, snap his fingers, Q style, and they all vanish from the space-time continuum and reappear after the floor? Or just all there of the go. bad people vanish? Just die? Just yeah. kill all of the bad people? Yeah. God is good at killing people. Rapture out the bad people. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Um, uh, oh, well. There's just no talking to some people. You know, I was thinking, you know, if, if if they if they cage the animals two by two and not individually, then you, of course you have the problem of they're going to reproduce, mm-hmm. and then you have to induce abortions or something. Like, how are you can't just start multiplying your population because you don't have the room, <sighs> and then you have to feed all of those. So many complexities. Yeah. Complicated work here. Speaking of complicated issues, Luke, you've got complicated issues, <laughs> and how. Let's get into some God Thinks Like You. <laughs> oh, God Thinks Like You. I've been away from you for so long, my sweet. My listeners might have noticed that I wasn't around for several months. What was I doing? One of the things I was doing was I was working on a chapter of a book that somebody asked me to write on morality and religion. So I've been steeped in religion and morality research for nigh upon six months now. And I thought I would share, divide it up into chunks because it's so much, too much for one episode uh, that have to do with different aspects of religion. And so morality. we get a whole series. We, we've missed you and now we get a whole series of God things. Yeah. Like if you Listeners might recall other series that we've done like the Summer Genocide series. Mm-hmm. This can't be much worse than that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> now we're doing the what? The winter of morality? <laughs> the winter of discontent. Winter is coming and it's moral. Brace yourselves. Winter is coming. Should that should we call the series that the winter of moral discontent? <laughs> Perfect. Now is the winter of our moral discontent, made glorious by the intuitional and rational models of whatever. <clears throat> please, of please make sure yes. you bring graphs and other visual aids. <laughs> oh, I will. <laughs> yes, but so one of the the theme. I'm going to divide it up into several themes. I'll, I'll uh, be dealing with some of the more philosophical issues with how religious and non-religious people make moral decisions later, but one of the things I just wanted to start with was some descriptive stuff that is just simply describing other patterns of morality that people have 
in their behavior? Can we tell the difference between, you know, religious and non-religious people? So I thought I would start off with some of the more paradoxical findings right away on things that you would not expect, ways in which religious people actually don't seem to be more moral. In fact, you could argue that they're less moral. So I thought I would start with some of the the minor stuff like lie, cheat, and steal stuff. Or I guess tipping would be one way to be minor moral. That is, can uh, there are some several studies coming out on minor situations that you could s- compare people like how much of a tip they leave or whether they're yeah. willing to lie to somebody. It's or- interesting that there's actually empirical studies on this because I, I get all these – in my Facebook feed, I get all these little gawker articles about fundamentalist couples – uh, who are only tipping 10 percent because they say, well, God gets 10 percent. Why should you get 18? Or that right. other uh, that other gentleman who refused to give the waitress a tip because she he apparently felt she was a lesbian. I'm not sure how he knew that. Yeah, there's, uh, there's and products. Wasn't like- going to share God's richness. With a sinner. I didn't know that there was a stereotype on servers that, that Christians are bad tippers. But that was one of the things that these studies were – the study was looking at. And that I, apparently there's products out there that is, looks like a $10 bill or some denomination and then you flip it on the other side and there's mm-hmm. a religious message. Oh so, my god! So apparently, yes. yeah, there's – Better than money is the gift of God's salvation. Oh but yeah, it god. looks like you've tipped them and it's actually a track. And even situationally, there's a stereotype that you don't want to do brunch after church because the the the, the tight wads apparently are out in force in not tipping. Well, especially in Dutch West Michigan. Mm-hmm. So so yeah, this is this is a study that actually tried to quantify this. The authors are uh, Lynn and Katz, and uh, the title is "Are Christian Religious People Poor Tippers?" in the Journal of Applied Social Psychology. So they do just that. They uh, actually gathered some data on like through the web on what's the typical tip that people leave and then they use some various predictors to kind of predict what are the predictors of leaving big tips small tips you know the normative 15% i guess is the is the normative is, standard is that normative yeah it that should seems, be 20 but i was going to yeah. say see but you guys Actually, are you religious it, no it, it should okay, be well, it should go. be zero and we should be paying them Better than an actual wage. living wage. Right. Well, they it's basically get... tips are a way. Sorry, sorry for the aside, but no, I, no. I've used tips as a subsidy on employers who don't want to pay their employees. Well, they don't even get paid minimum yeah. wage. Yeah, they get paid, so you guys and the justification very, very is little. tips. Your godless socialist is Which the only is, reason we're having this conversation. Well, and I believe it's in like San Francisco where they don't do that. It's it in the really? it's the law in I believe it's San Francisco. There are some local where cities where they're banning this as a practice, to, and I'm all for it. I, I, absolutely, cool. me too. I would rather pay more for my my yeah. food and not have to chew a twenty percent tip on yeah. top of it. Yeah, so yeah, like when to the, know they're getting paid enough to eat themselves. When the, when the study was quantifying it, they talked about some hypothesis to explain why it might be that Christians would leave lower tips. The study actually found, though, as a whole, it's not so much that Christians left poorer tips, but non-religious and Jewish people and some of the other ones left. A greater tips and that the spread within Christianity was actually fairly wide. Hmm. So what they found was is that if you just, if you just took the numbers overall, it wasn't that Christians left significantly less or would leave lower amounts. But if you – there was a certain proportion of them. They said that there was like 13 percent of the Christians left less than you know substandard things, less than 15 percent, hmm. which was twice as much as like non-religious people and Jews. Is so that there, just because they're bad at math? 
Well, they talk about some hypothesis. 20% is so much easier. (laughs) They controlled for things like education and whatnot. But some of the things that they suggested were one – I think we've talked before in the show about this phenomena where if you do something – other parts of the day where you feel that you've earned it, that you decrease your moral behaviors right. later. Moral oh. So if you were tithing Sunday, at sure, we're all the right. utility monster from the those I gave utilitarian it the thought experiment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So if you gave it the, at the office morally, that maybe when you're out with a situation like that, that you would say, I don't have to give. I give here. God 10 percent. Why should I give you 15? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That would fit with that one. Or some of the other things where maybe they figured that um, some of the religious people might be actually resentful of others working, staffing these places. Like if it's a Sunday, they think that those people should be not be working on a Sunday. You shouldn't be working at the place where I well, came where you, to yeah, buy I your came service. where you're serving me. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Love that hypocrisy. Uh-huh. Or just simple things like they are more tend to be more like authoritarian and conservative and those people in general might not. View tipping in the way that the opposite of the way that you godless socialists think. <laughs> right. um, so that was one domain is is tips. I guess the way that I conceptualize that is that a lot of these advantages we talk about with charity and religion, giving more for religious. Well, this is a situation in which you're not assured that the person you're giving to is a fellow religious member. And like I've always talked on this show, spontaneous interactions where you're less likely to encounter a fellow religious person, you don't see these religious advantages. Mm -hmm. Another one uh, study that was done, this is not on tipping, but it's online, that found somewhat surprising things is that uh, there's a study called uh, Personal Characteristics Online, by the author's name is Childs, where they had one of these economic games that I've talked about before where you're in a laboratory, you're supposedly playing with somebody in the other room and you can exchange money or messages with this other person. This particular game was set up where you have different amounts of money and the player in question can send a message to the person in the next room recommending what offer they should take, which obviously leaves some room. If you want to scam the other person and keep more for yourself, you might then send a lie to them basically recommending a substandard amount like, hey, person B, if you take this one, you'll be happy, but then actually I get to keep more money. And what they found was is that with predictors of lying in this situation, that um, a lot of things did not predict that they that you would expect sex, age, GPA in school because these were students didn't predict lying. But religious importance was positively related to lying. That is, the more religion was important to you, the more likely these people were to to give a misleading message to the person in the other mm. room. But not not church attendance, correct? And not church attendance. Your review showed a lot of the same thing. Uh, you know, the folks who are just going to church for community and that sort of thing don't seem to display a lot of these antisocial behaviors, whereas it's the intrinsically religious. They have strong personal religious Their feelings beliefs. or commitment. Yeah. You, you know, I might expect it the other way around. I guess that's why I, I bring it up. As I back when I was a believer, I would have thought, you know, it's just the people coming to church and singing the songs that they're not really committed. They're not really moral people. Right. And uh, and it's looking like it's the Bible thumpers and uh, and the uh, ideologues that are truly less moral. Yeah, well, in this particular one, where the the authors, this was a Canadian study, and one of the things that they talked about, I, our listeners might be familiar with, Canada is not as religious as the United States is. That at a big state university where they did the study in Canada, the norm of the community would be that the, most people are secular, and and Christians are somewhat in a minority. So if you're an experiment, one of the things they thought, why would you lie more to the person or deceive them more to keep money, maybe the religious people felt that they statistically likely that the person in the other room was not of their religion. And so mm. they felt maybe that they were separate from those people and were mm. – had less qualms about scamming them. 
you know, because it's a group effect. Whereas in our country, a lot of the things might be contextually based where in the United States, you're probably around here, you would assume if you walk into a a, a common uh, public place that the other people would be religious. Mm-hmm. Right. So part of this might be contextual and the people that you are with uh, based upon the population, you could assume that somebody is, is or isn't likely to be religious. Another uh, recent study that I looked at, and this isn't uh, lying and cheating and stealing, but it's with drunkenness and aggression, which are my favorite studies to look at. Uh, <laughs> they looked at the effect of aggression. Look at or take part in? Well, I have to. You have to try them out. Yeah, of course. Obviously, make sure the study wor- the apparatus works. <laughs> That's right. right. Uh, test out the breathalyzer. But uh, there's a standard uh, sort of. Our, a- our last show of the year should be a drunkenness and aggression trial. <laughs> <laughs> I'll notify people as the increasing we'll blood just, alcohol content. Yeah. Yeah. We, we could just go we'll, to one of our we'll families' homes for Christmas, yeah. and then we'll love do it. We'll, we'll, come out, we'll, we'll come out with no no outline, no plan. We'll just play cards against humanity. Li- live show, yes. accepting calls, and a shot for each caller. Excellent. <laughs> Let's see who's the last person on the air, the last person conscious. Well, there's, there's a standard aggression paradigm that they use in aggression research that measures your tendency to be sort of retaliate, to be easily pissed off. Uh, and so the, the, it goes like this, that you, again, are led to believe you're playing a game with somebody else in the other room and you can give and receive shocks. So it's like a competition. Whoever memorizes the most or wins certain trials within the game um, can set a shock level to what the other person gets and you get to see what they would give you. The rationale being that if you play – and obviously the experimenters rig who wins or not. Um, but uh, you get to see how – if you think that the other person would have shocked you, what would you assign back? Would you be kind of like, well, I'll just stick at a low level of shock? Or would you be likely to say, oh, you're going to get a 10, buddy, because you're it, – so it measures your tendency to be easily provoked. Mm. And what they did in this study was that they measured that as a function of how much alcohol the person – has or believes they have and then they looked at their religion. So really you would think again that religious people in, in general would be sort of more – less likely to be provocable or retaliatory, so less vengeful. This was an interesting study because they gave people either actual three or four drinks of alcohol and you, you know that's up there into a intoxication yeah. or they gave them a placebo, so smearing the glass with – Booze, but not but having a you know fake alcohol tasting substance in the glass mixed in with the stuff. So the people either were drunk or thought they were drinking alcohol. And what they found was a classic uh, cross interaction. Like uh, it depended upon both the religiosity and the alcohol. If the people were not actually getting alcohol and just thought they were, the religious people were less aggressive. Hmm. So just like you would imagine, so that placebo. Yeah, they they were less likely to shock back a high level. Mm-hmm. But if they were drunk, the opposite was the case. The more religious the person was, the more likely they were to give aggressive shocks to the person if they were religious and intoxicated. Wouldn't that be just true of everybody though? Yeah, but I was wondering about that. No, no, if you were less religious, you became less aggressive. Less aggressive when, drunk. when drunk? Yes. Wow. Really? When, when legitimately drunk. Right. So non-religious people are happy drunks. Religious people as a population. How could we account for that result? Now again the standard hypothesis would be religion makes you peaceful because you're thinking forgiving Jesus type thoughts. All right. Mm-hmm. One thing might be that again if you keep the lid on during the day on your regression all the time that there might be in some ways a disinhibition uh, rubber band effect. Uh, so because we're dicks most of the day you when we're drunk. <laughs> We're pretty much. I keep telling people I don't carry around that much anger because I just let it all hang. Yeah. yeah. Actually, this really jives with my personal experience (laughs) as I'm thinking about it. Yeah. I I would say you know 
I get a lot of fake smiles and like, how are you doing from some of my Christian friends and my atheist friends are much more likely to, you know, not have to look all happy and cheery all the time. Well, I think we've they'll all tell you F you to your face if you upset them. Um, so I guess the idea is the religious people are really just brimming with ang- anger and hatred and uh, <laughs> the alcohol brings it up. it up. Well, I think it does bring up the, the broader moral issue of is self-control a good thing? If it leads to this sort of like feeling that you're always keeping a lid on a boiling mm-hmm. pot right. yeah. or is it better if somebody periodically is a little bit of a dick in small doses and lets the anger out but doesn't feel like they're carrying around something that they would just snap? You know, like is too much self-control a bad thing? Hmm. We, you can debate that. I'm just throwing it out there that, you know, that, that yes. So we've all heard stories where people seem nice and, and, and peaceful and almost too peaceful. And then when they get drunk or go crazy, it's like on a rampage. I mean, look at Spock. You guys saw Into Darkness, didn't you? Oh, yeah. yeah. When he lets loose, he lets loose. Yeah, he just he – just... Talking about mock time? What? The episode of Mock Time where he has to go mate. Oh, yeah. The, oh, no, you're talking pa- about the news. No, not in, even in non-Ponfar situations, yeah. <laughs> uh, Spock they will. They know the terms. <laughs> <laughs> if he cracks, yeah. he, he just well, he starts cracking bones. And so this, not this, nice. this not, not bones, in, not Dr. Not, McCoy, not doctor. But, yeah, uh, not. Sometimes. Yeah, well, I mean. God, he would. Get, get me out of here. Good target. But. You mean beam me up? Beam me uh, up. Somebody beam me up. Good one, Dave. Yeah. So this, uh, there's a couple articles I was reading though on the broader issue of, uh, of extending this into what patterns do correlate with religiosity of like moral type issues. Do they cluster in any way? Hmm. Uh, because, you know, I've, listeners will know that I've talked before in the show about things like this that seem kind of odd. Like, you know, obviously religious people tend to have more conservative morality about sexual, reproductive, gay, abortion type issues. But there, a lot of studies are, you know, have tried to categorize. Well, what does this pattern indicate about them? And there's a, in, uh, listeners might remember what I've been talking a lot of, uh, in episodes about this theory of intuitive morality, like by Jonathan Haidt, his different five areas of moral concern. Mm-hmm. So like people, like dials on a equalizer. Everybody recognizes that certain patterns of morality exist, but they emphasize them differently. Mm-hmm. So his – just quickly, his to review, his thing is like people can make decisions based on harmfulness versus care. Mm-hmm. So like is, does this action hurt anybody? Uh, mm-hmm. On fairness versus unfairness, like is this particular action equal for everyone or do some people get shafted? Uh, authority concerns. So uh, things are moral to the extent that uh, an authority says so or I'm obedient to authority. Uh, group Concerns, so things are moral if they protect my group, uh, as opposed to you know um, treasonous to my group. And then purity, sanctity concerns. Things are right or wrong because they feel icky or transgressive, as opposed to pure and, and sanctified. So that that theory would predict that you know I've talked before about that religious people tend to emphasize those domains more or less equally. They take into account you know authority issues as well as who's hurt, whereas non-religious and liberal type people tend to just focus on two. Does it hurt anybody? Harmfulness. And is it fair to everybody? Fairness. And they don't emphasize those other three, sanctity or purity or group. Well, there was a study that uh, came out this year by uh, the author's name is Koliva uh, about tracing – it's called Tracing the Threads, How the Five Concerns, Especially Purity, Help Explain Culture War Attitudes. And when they actually try to empirically look at Things like attitudes on abortion, homosexuality, immigration. What moral attitudes actually predict those things? 
And the reason I, I thought this was such an interesting article was because they found that the ones that you would think of as intuitively or even that people offer as explanations, so like abortion, many people who are pro-life say you're hurting the fetus. It mm -hmm. sounds like a harm-based attitude. Right. The reason it's immoral, why, is because you're harming a person. Or like um, – Things like uh, illegal immigration, that those people are, shouldn't come here because they are not members of our group. So there's these things that seem like on a surface level they should go and correlate with the rationale that you're arguing with. What this article found was surprisingly once you pull all these different emphasis in and like ask people you know, about their moral attitudes and then try to predict their attitudes on any given issue, that it didn't work in any one-to-one -one way uh, with the apparent things. Actually, purity was the one area. This is the one that, you know, you're concerned about things being sanctified as opposed to, to contaminated. That predicted things like abortion, immigration, global warming, <laughs> above and beyond wow. the other rationales. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So in other words, when they're competing with each other, you might give an argument that is harm-based. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't do something because it hurts the baby or you shouldn't uh, let people in because they're not our group. But actually your attitude on this whole sanctified, purified dimension – uh, sensitivity to things like disgust, for example, is a better predictor of things like a broad variety of social issues that have nothing to do with contamination or sanctification. That's an interesting finding. I have a critical thinking question. Uh, do, is this – could this just be a sign that Height's categories are – need to be rethought? I think he based his categories on the people's explicit logical rationale. Okay. If I were to ask you why you oppose – Abortion or immigration or, glo or global warming. Yeah, that's but as we know, that's that's probably more rationalization than what's really that's underlying. It. That's right. what it looks like. Things that, that are going. People on. offer. Uh, let's take abortion. That people might offer up. It's a person, not a fetus and or uh, embryo. We need to protect it. That might be their their uh, their explicit conscious because they know that that's a, uh, they need a reason. Right. Where, but when you look at things like the, the ick factor, there's a reason that they, uh, that abortion is with a broader variety of issues like reproductive issues or rape or things like that, that they, they view abortion not as a harm issue really on a gut level. It strikes them as a purity violation issue uh, or the same with th like homosexuality. Oh, it's um, – uh, traditional marriage is something we've always had. You're making an argument on the basis of authority or, mm -hmm. or group concerns. But really it's an ick factor. They right. don't like it because the – thought of gay guys kissing is yucky, this sort of thing. So, so basically, morally, we're all emotivists, really. <laughs> no, matter, no matter what our rationale is for it, we all at gut level judge this stuff on yeah, well, the, how yeah, icky it seems the to. The authors suggest, and this is – I'll pick this up when my, on my next um, uh, segment of the morality, is that, that your sensitivity your, – you might be wired on some level even before, even beyond the religious issue or the political issue, to have a high or low, let's say, disgust, ick factor as opposed to tolerance for things. That is a, a typical non-religious secular argument is, uh, you know, that if something's, if nobody's being hurt, why is it wrong? But it's also, I think it's beyond that. This would suggest that we are not as grossed out by things or we're not mm. as concerned that something is a violation of yeah. sacred values. Sure. And that informs our religious attitudes as well as our political attitudes. That is, the religious mm -hmm. stuff might come afterwards. You might be wired almost maybe you could argue genetically or neurologically to have a higher threshold or a lower threshold on this broader sense of, of um, disgust, contamination, boundary violations. Mm -hmm. You know, there, There's other research too on people like conservatives. Beyond the whole religious issue, conservatives tend to be more – 
afraid and upset by yucky things. Yeah. Their, their threshold literally physiologically is to be more startled and fearful and, and disgusted by things that they perceive as being contamination violations. Again, that study, well, uh, which I think we've re- recommended on this show dozens of times, but uh, Jost's The uh, the End of Ideology mm-hmm. gets heavy into that and very fascinating stuff about um, about, yeah, real physiological responses that, you know, I mean, again, stuff you can't make up. This is, you know, measures of like the amount of sweat you have, your, your heart rate response. going up, your yeah. startle response, your eyes dilating. Um, yeah, conservatives tend to show a greater stress response to a, a lot of these things, meaning physiologically something is driving uh, – uh, there might be physiological causes – to their political convictions. Yeah. I think at a minimum level it suggests like we've talked about before that a lot of our explicit rationales for things, apologetics or counter-apologetics, are post hoc. They're rationalizations of positions that we've arrived at for more emotional or even primitive reasons ahead of time. Mm. Like that doesn't shock me. Why should I be threatened versus, oh, we got to stop that. And then you cobble together a rationale yeah. later on. It might involve religion or – yeah. So, uh, I'll talk about the issue in, in some of my future installments of the uh, uh, of the moral issue. I'm going to get more into things like how are moral decisions made in regards to things like utilitarian or consequential type. Things. Yeah. I and uh, hopefully for this series, uh, I'd I'd really like to focus on that kind of intersection between how are we actually making our moral moral decisions and how should we make our moral decisions. Very interesting interplay. Uh, like you said, if, if we're rationalizing, we kind of have our gut and then we rationalize later. I feel like, well, to a certain degree, that's OK. We need to do mm-hmm. the – it's not a waste of time to think logically about morality and to try to find a good intellectually based moral system. I think that's a worthwhile enterprise. might be one of those system two sides of the brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't kick in all that often. Maybe we do re- rely on intuition more often. But um, how do those worlds relate? Um, well, there are times where intuitions actually are a good thing and being too calculating yeah. seems Could cold. actually backfire. That is our empathy is an intuition, to the, the thought that says, no, you shouldn't do that. Uh, so like we'll, we'll get into things like sometimes utilitarianism can be a cold, cold, almost psychopathic decision-making process. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Well, this should be fun to explore some of these areas. Yeah, and and this leads uh, surprisingly uh, coherently into our shit list for this week. The founder of Scotland's largest humanist group, Nigel Bruce, has stepped down from the Humanist Society of Scotland because of his opposition to same-sex marriage and the organization's support of same-sex marriage. He calls it, quote, a step backward for human civilization and, quote, a crime against human children, end quote. This is the kind of talk we expect to hear from religious leaders. I mean, Cam Ham and and so forth. But a humanist leader, the founder of the largest humanist group in Scotland. Well, humanist in name only. 
Well, yeah, I mean that's that's the thing is yeah. he's uh, I think like I said on uh, somebody slipped through the cracks on some. Does level, he or... uh, does he argue his case at all? Like what reasons does all, he give? All we this? have here from the, from the uh, Herald Scotland is a, a very brief mention. Now, the one thing I will point out is he's 92 years old, oh. which may tell us uh, he's a, a product of another of, age. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But no, he said that uh, um, because the. The Humanist Society of Scotland supports um, same-sex marriage ceremonies Mm -hmm. and he sees those as a backward step for human civilization and a crime against human children. So I I wonder how much underground homophobia exists in the secular community. I I, I mean my experiences have always been very positive. I've I've found – the humanist community to be one of the most inclusive and open-minded groups of people I've ever met. What we tend to expect it to be. I've been sometimes shocked by some of my favorite heroes mm. uh, to hear the the kind of bigoted stuff that comes out of them. I, Carl Sagan comes to mind. Um, really? Yeah, Carl Sagan was a was an extreme uh, sexist and. Uh, Oh, well, and, thankfully, there's none of those around in the secular movement anymore. No, <laughs> no, no. I've seen no evidence of no, it. No, absolutely uh, no. His biographers have captured him saying some pretty nasty things about homosexuals too, um, which to his credit, you know, he overcame that. Yeah. Andrian really changed – opened his mind to how, how conservative some of his attitudes were and and uh, he made an effort to change that later in life. But it just surprises me that he could have been swimming in that sea mm-hmm. for so long. I mean he's doing work with critical thinkers and yeah. and humanist groups and everything. How are those attitudes maintained in our culture? Yeah, I do wonder. I wonder if maybe the only reason why everything seems cool with homosexuals is because we have – a large influx of younger people into these communities yeah. just as of late. Yeah. That's interesting. I wonder if we were to o- focus on the older populations, if we would find more of these attitudes creeping below the surface. Well, I don't know. Even going going back to folks like Ingersoll, you see you know, the very early uh, free thinkers here in the United States were very um, uh, anti-slavery and so forth. But there's still a, a strain, even with some yeah. of the oh, early Darwin feminist leaders, that there's some some scary racist stuff yeah. going on there as yeah. well. So, you know, and thankfully, we're headed in the right direction. And now uh, Tim McGuire, the spokesman for the Humanist Society of Scotland, said he was surprised, but added that uh, Mr. Bruce is entitled to hold those views, um, but probably pretty happy to see him uh, uh, on his way out the door at this point. Again, yeah. 92 years old, it doesn't excuse it, but I think it may explain um, yeah, it a, a little bit some more. Important yeah, it gives it a little, little extra context, yeah. I guess. Well, I'm, I'm glad he's no longer he's, serving in that position. He is gone, but let's turn now to a stranger than fiction. Al-Qaeda-linked militants apologize for cutting off wrong guy's head. This comes to us from Gawker.com, and yeah, that's exactly what happened. They chopped off the head. The, the first line of this article. Oh, God. The, the article terrible. as it is. Uh, oh, I, thought it, I thought it was a poem mine comes from the, this. Yeah, mine comes from the Telegraph, but the first line of this article is, Militant Islamist rebels in Syria linked to Al-Qaeda 
have asked for understanding and forgiveness for cutting off and putting on display the wrong man's head. Well, See, well and that line pretty much says it all. Yeah. You, you, did you miss this part? Al Qaeda linked militants fighting in Syria scrambled to head off an embarrassing <laughs> decapitation <laughs> gaffe this week. Yeah, that, that's yeah, the Gawker yeah. article. And embarrassing yeah. decapitation gaffe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what? Okay. We're Did, laughing, uh, but this is horrifying. Well, we have a top yes. ten list for embarrassing uh, decapitation <laughs> gaffes. Um, through a spokesman, the article from Gawker says the Islamic State of Iraq and Al Sham, which is apparently and this is one of the ways I, I thought it was a joke, is um, shortened to ISIS, which made yeah. me think immediately of Archer. But uh, no, this is real. This is real. Uh, an al-Qaeda-affiliated militant group in Syria apologized for decapitating Mohammed Fares, a commander with fellow rebel organization mm-hmm. Arar al-Sham. Here's what the Telegraph says. An ISIS spokesman uh, confirmed that Mr. Fares had been injured and thinking he had been captured by members of a Shia militia against which he was fighting. So he thought he was captured by by the enemy, asked them to kill him in terms misunderstood by the ISIS members, in fact, taking him to the hospital. Which which Mm. sounds to me like the ultimate form of victim blaming, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Like like, like he was the one who didn't know who we were. He just asked us to kill him. He said cut off my head. So we (laughs) did it. And then they displayed it. Yeah. Cut off his head. And that's the – no one even knew this was a mistake until somebody was watching the video of of them holding up the severed head and recognized one of his buds in it. Oh, my God. I'm like – how does how does that work out? Like you're you're getting up early in the morning. You're just having a, a great morning. You know, Checking in catching up on your videos. favorite really jihadi blogs with your cup of coffee. <laughs> and then suddenly you're like, oh, great new <laughs> decapitation videos. I know that guy. Wait, wait, have you guys ever seen? It was about four or five years ago. There was a movie called Young Lions. I think it was Four Lions or Four Lions. Uh, yeah, Four Lions. Sorry. Fan. Dark, Fantastic. dark comedy about uh, in Britain, about four jihadis, four jihadis in in Britain, and so these are you know you, they again it's it's very dark, but they they but it's one like, of the funniest movies they I've accidentally seen do things like accidentally blow themselves up or have the incorrect yeah. like a toy gun in their suicide videos instead of a real one. <laughs> it is or at the end they like they shoot they're in a costume at the parade at the uh, in London and the snipers are like you know. You know, we need. To, he's in a bear outfit. Let's shoot him. And then they shoot the guy. Wait, that's a Wookiee. What? That's a bear. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, so it's like jokes called? that you shouldn't laugh at. It's called at. Four, Four Lions. Lions. It's available on Netflix. But it's a uh, sad. This seems like something it's, that could be straight really on the because that they satirize. They satirize these people yeah. who's in you know with very little humor. These people's lives are not even serious, but their their actions are so over the top and stupid that yeah. it just makes them look like idiots. And this, well, that's exactly what happened. They they had to. <laughs> They got the email. Um, I recognize that head, and they had to get on shamefaced and apologize. Or I could see, like you know, since everybody, since a lot of the names are pretty similar, there they have you know that, that somebody's like, we need to kill this guy with this name. Like, you yeah, know, I mean, his I first am, name is Mohammed. I'm the other yeah. guy. It's not exactly. It's like how the life of Brian. You know, everybody is Brian. <laughs> I, I just I'm lo- not Brian. I love the irony of a of a group that just beheaded somebody. Asking, asking for, for understanding yeah, and yeah. forgiveness. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> please yeah. understand. You've got to understand. It's really hard. You don't always know whose head you're taking off. <laughs> but, you know, it's, but. it's anybody could have made this mistake. 
best part. We all have beards. Uh, the spokesman. <laughs> I mean, really, can you tell us apart? I no, can't. Here's the silver lining. The spokesman referenced a story in the Quran yeah. in which Muhammad said Allah would forgive a man who killed a believer in error. So if you accidentally yeah. had the wrong God. guy... You can be forgiven. I mean, what a wonderful God we have, right? That as long as the in your heart of hearts, you, you wanted to torture and decapitate an infidel, God will understand your intentions and forgive you. So, and if Allah does that, we should do no less. It, it, it's awful. A, a, a man is dead. A bad man, to be fair, is dead. This guy was working with Al Qaeda. He yeah, was a it's militant. not clear he himself was a terrorist. Well, but. he was fighting uh, against a, a Shia group, He's, against a Shia militia, and he was taken captive because he was injured. Yeah. So he was. I mean, he was on the battlefield. It, what, what I mean is, he's he's a rebel fighter. It's not oh, sure. clear that he had ties to Al Qaeda or any terrorist cell. It's it's conceivable that he's no, just an independence fighter. He's a, a commander with a fellow. Rebel organization. He's a commander with, or yeah. Was I, I just don't think Arar all of, not all of the rebels in Syria are terrorists. Some of them are. I think There's some of them should groups. be called freedom fighters. Sure. Yeah, yeah, okay. Fighting the revolution for secular yeah. reasons, yes. and then and then the religious groups came in, and so yeah. they, they're schisming within themselves about the, the right. fundamentalist messy, opposition, messy, which messy is why this is apparently so confusing. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> you can see taking off yeah. the wrong guys' heads. Yeah. So. yeah. It's, it's, we can understand now where they're coming. So from. actually, now that we've contextualized <laughs> that, yeah, yeah. I've, now I feel pretty bad for mocking these guys. Right. I feel. I got so many. Cool comments on my when I posted this on Facebook, I got stuff like "How do you say my bad in in Arabic?" <laughs> or uh, or the other one, somebody just posted, "Whoopsies." <laughs> I feel so bad about laughing about this, uh, but then I don't because yeah, it's I, also I don't like, really. I mean, uh, just like Sylvia Brown dying, I just can't feel bad about it because yeah. she was a terrible person who preyed on people who were looking for help and caused – I mean yeah. – I think it was it Clarence Darrow who said that he would never wish anyone dead, but he has read many obituaries with, with pleasure. With, with, with a smile on his face or something. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's a good way to put it. I've never killed a man, a but I have read many an obituary with pleasure. Yes. Yep. That's uh, – <laughs> That nails it right there. Um, I guess we'll end it there for this week. Um, in the meantime, uh, you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at slash doubtcast. Check out videos on youtube.com slash doubtcast. You can listen to the show on iTunes or Stitcher. And please, if you are and you haven't yet written a review or even if you wrote a review back in 2008, write another review because it's really the review for a show that's been around for a while. It's the reviews that keeps us um, fresh at the top of the the searches so that when people are looking for uh, this kind of show, they'll find us. So write those reviews. We really appreciate it. On iTunes and on Stitcher. iTunes and Stitcher. Also, a a quick call for help. Um, Several several of you have been dedicated to um, uh, informing us about problems with our feed, various different apps Mm -hmm. or iTunes refreshing. I've gotten a lot of uh, helpful advice but so far i've tried all of the various different things people have emailed me and we're still having feed problems if if we have any listeners out there that this is kind of your speciality 
You would know yes. how to analyze a problem here. We're doing this on a shoestring budget. We could sure use and your help. none of us are technically um, savvy. Yeah, please email doubtcast at gmail.com and, uh, and talk to us. Uh, um, we could use a little help in this area because we want as many people to get this show as possible. Yeah. I, I've, um, I've talked to a lot of people that are like, Oh, you're still making shows, right? Yeah, and they're they're stuck at 98 episode. And there's other people and who are not as technologically stupid as we are, and, yeah, yeah. and who are really frustrated with us about not yeah. doing something about it. I, you know, thank you for keeping on us about it, but uh, but yeah, we we are going to need help. And weirdly, I don't listen to the show, and my iTunes feed has worked fine. Yeah, since and yeah. that's one. part so of why I didn't know too, there was a problem. Yeah, mine works fine too, but I, yeah. Um, but yeah, others. Uh, but uh, yeah, or or if you have if you want to help us with technical stuff, or if you have questions, comments, challenges, etc., doubtcast at gmail.com is the way to reach us. And we'll be back soon with more reasonable doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. To catch up on past reasonable doubts episodes, or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.